to your commercial-free, uninterrupted investment show. Sponsored by the SEC-registered investment firm, Wilsey Asset Management, a fiduciary firm owned and operated by President Brent Wilsey, who has been putting clients' investment needs first for over 40 years. The Smart Investing Show has been giving unbiased financial information for over 27 years on local radio stations right here in San Diego, providing you with fundamental analysis on stocks and investments you want to know about. Now, here are your hosts, Brent and Chase Woolsey. Well, hello and welcome to Smart Investing Show. I'm Brent Wilsey, president of Wilsey Asset Management. Great to have you here on the Smart Investing Show. Got a lot of things to talk about and a special show today. Uh, October 16th is the last day for filing your taxes for 2022. I have a special guest today, Tracy Gaines, who, gosh, we were talking earlier in the show. I've known Tracy for 20 years maybe longer. We've been uh, actually doing my taxes for that long. He's got some great topics we're going to talk about to make sure you understand what's going on tax-wise. Also, too, we've got some things I want to talk about. I, I've got to talk about that uh, CPI that came out on Thursday because we had a great jobs report the previous uh, Friday, or week ago Friday. Uh, but I was disappointed uh, by the consumer price index as I believe there would be a slower growth in the inflation rate. Well, with that being said, I don't believe the report is problematic. The headline number for September of 3.7% matched August rate was only slightly ahead of the expectation of 3.6%. The core rate, which excludes food and energy, came in at 4.1%, which was pretty much right in line with expectations and was below August readings of 4.3%. That was also the lowest reading on core CPI since September 2021, when the report showed inflation of 4%. Now, regarding the miss on the headline number, it is important to remember that with the recent increase in energy prices, we have lost a major benefit that was pushing the headline number lower for most of the year. In fact, energy prices only fell 0.5% compared to last year, and gasoline prices were actually up 3%. This compares to just a few months ago in the month of June when energy prices were down 16.7% and gasoline prices, well, well they were down 26.5% compared to the prior year. These declines were extremely helpful for the headline number CPI. One area that remains surprisingly high is the shelter index as it has climbed 7.2% compared to last year. I have pointed out many times that this is a lagging indicator but I'm surprised to see how much it is still weighing on the overall inflation front as housing rent prices have cooled tremendously on a, a real-time basis. With that said, the shelter index accounted for over 70% of the total increase of the core CPI. I still believe the shelter index is likely to cool as we end the year with would be beneficial to both headline and core CPI. And it's funny, we, I, you know, I, 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 came up with a formula that they used to get this headline number for for shelter. And it is so complex and there's the formulas are just unbelievable. I, I, I and I Chase and I were talking, is there some way to come up with something different? Uh, there doesn't appear to be, but the the number is just really hurting the CPI because the way it's calculated and is lagging, we know that rents are coming down. There's so much inventory out there for rents and for you know the housing market slowing down. We saw this past week builders are starting to have some problems. So housing is not quite what you may think it would be, but accounting for about 70% of the total increase in CPI, well, that that is a problem. So inflation is not as bad as the CPI number is. We'll be looking forward to the PCE number, which is what the Fed really uses, but I, I was disappointed with the... Uh, 
with the uh, CPI number that came out. I thought it would be better, and that did cause some turmoil with the uh, with the markets. And, and that brings me to stock market volatility. I want to address that before we get to, create, uh, to Tracy here. Uh, you may be wondering why there is so much volatility in the markets lately, and I will tell you it's because there is too much too much information. Uh, I've been managing money for over 40 years. And I, I remember back when Alan Greenspan was a Federal Reserve chairman. He was the only member of the Fed who could speak. He also did not speak very often. It, it was funny back then. He, he spoke so little that financial commentators on TV like CNBC, uh, which was one of the few at the time, uh, would make decisions based on the size of his briefcase on what decisions he may make. The FOMC consists of seven members of the Board of Governors, and there are 12 regional Federal Reserve Bank presidents. It seems to me that many more of these governors and Federal Reserve presidents are speaking publicly on their thoughts. I do agree that we need information, but not the opinions of so many different people who can change their mind when they meet and make decisions on interest rates and policies. I know it will not change, but I think too many people giving their views on what they think will happen is doing nothing more than causing volatility and confusing you, the investor. In the end, it doesn't matter what they say. It is only important what they decide when they meet eight times a year. Everything else, well, that's just a bunch of noise. And it's made investing very difficult because we've seen some volatility we've not seen before. It scares investors, and we always talk about how you got to focus on the fundamentals. Don't worry about the short-term movements. Don't worry about what this Fed governor said. Look at the business you have. What is going on? Are they making sales? Are they having profits? Are they reducing their debt? That's what you have to look at when it uh, comes to investing. So uh, I had a couple of topics. And, and if you want to get these topics, these do come from our newsletter. It's a free newsletter. Uh, just go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. And just go right to the middle page. You'll see newsletter. Sign up for it there, and you'll get these topics. We have many other ones, which I might have some time today to talk about. But we did talk in the newsletter that went out on Friday was offshore drilling, uh, more on stocks. Are they expensive, not expes- expensive? The National Labor's Relation Board, global trade, many important topics to help make you a smarter investor. So, again, go to our website, Smart Investing. 2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. And usually we do have uh, Harrison Johnson, our CFP, our financial planner, comes on the show about, oh, half past or so. And uh, he's getting married today. So he will not be going in today to give financial advice. He will be uh, uh, getting married today probably just about that time frame. And Chase is the best man, so he's up there as well. But I'm very happy to uh, introduce, uh, you may have uh, heard of him before, uh, Tracy Gaines, who is president of Gaines and Wells Financial Services. Tracy, thanks for being here this morning. I appreciate it. Hey, Brent. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. It's been a long time since I've been in these seats, so it's good to partner up with you today, and congratulations to Harrison. Yes, yeah. I mean, he's a good he, guy. I like him. Yeah, he, he's a good guy. Great financial planner, and uh, now I think, no, no, I was going to say everybody in our office is married, but no, we still have a couple that are still single. So. Well, let's get working on that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, that's not, not my job. I, <laughs> <laughs> you get in trouble doing stuff like that yeah, nowadays. <laughs> but, uh, you, you, you know, I asked you, uh, I think it was like last week, Tracy, can you come in and uh, we want to talk about what's going on in taxes. You came up with some great topics, and I really want to address these. Uh, is it okay if we open the phone lines for listeners? Absolutely. Okay, Let's have people call in. And okay. It is the tax deadline, as you know, Brenton, you mentioned earlier, on Monday, October the 16th. And this year for us in California was a very unusual year. Uh, normally, everybody knows that we have our tax deadline is April 15th, 16th, right around that every year. But because of the heavy rains and the floods and everything uh, that was going on throughout the state, 
the Internal Revenue Service decided to extend in most counties in <coughs> California and a couple other states uh, the filing deadline until October 16th, which is coming up, of course, on Monday. So the really important thing about that is um, April 15th is a very important day, not only to file your returns, but the main thing is to pay the tax. Right. We can file extensions, but that's only an extension on time to file the paperwork, to file the tax forms, not to pay the tax. Well, that got extended along with an extension to file the paperwork. So if you haven't paid your 22 taxes yet and you're behind, uh, normally you'd be facing some pretty stiff penalties at this point in time, this far down the road, uh, six months after the filing deadline, but they've extended that also. So again, at the last minute, if you can't get your return done and you know you're going to owe on Monday, get that money into them, make an, a payment, throw some money at them, uh, because the biggest penalty starts off, which is the late filing penalty, and that's 5% per month up to a maximum of 25%. So that's, that's a huge that, that's penalty. A, that's a heavy hit, yeah. <laughs> so a major if you owe $2,000, I can get out of hand pretty quickly. So. And, and Tracy, if you don't pay that tax you owe on October 16th, the clock starts then. It doesn't go all the way back to April, does it? No, it starts okay. on October 16th. Okay, yeah. October so 16th. everything was extended right. you know, to that deadline. But again, this is unusual. So... You know, it was kind of funny because people took advantage of it. We had a lot of procrastinators. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Man, I got six months. I don't right. have to mess with this. So, <laughs> so yeah, so we're dealing with that right now. But uh, next year, you know, barring any other catastrophe, uh, the filing deadline will be back to April 15th. So get in early, get your stuff right. done, get your taxes paid on time. And our job at, at Gaines & Welsh is we've been in the same location doing taxes for people for over 46 years now. And so our main mission in working with our clients, Brent, on taxes is so that you don't pay one dime more than you're legally obligated to the federal or state government. So one of those things where people don't pay attention, don't get their taxes on time, these penalties can really add up. So right. uh, maybe make a New Year's resolution. You know, Get in to see your tax guy if you need help. We're always available for everybody starting the new year. Uh, but get those taxes paid on time so you're not giving them any more money than you absolutely have to. And actually, I've been using you for, again, I think like 20 years. You've been doing my taxes. We also refer our clients to you as well. You work with a, a many number of our, our clients as well. They've been very happy right. Thank uh, you. with you. Uh, so, again, uh, and your, your website, uh, or do you have a website or email? Let's see. What do you, mm-hmm. what do you have? It's uh, Gaines and Welsh. Gaines and Welsh. Dot com, I think, or Gaines and Welsh Financial yeah. Services.com. Yeah. Just Google Gaines and Welsh it and you'll up. find me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like I said, I've been in the same location down in Mission Valley since 1977. And, and Welsh is spelled W E L S H. Yes, yeah. Right. You want to make sure you get that right. Sometimes people can't get Welshy spelled right. You just, you I know. know. You well, know. I say Welsh, people type in Walsh. And yes, yeah. So W E L S H. Tracy Gaines. And, uh, well, and, and actually email you, Tracy at GainesandWellShaw.com. So that's great. So, uh, and one thing too, and I, you did bring it up, is people have to realize that this is a one-time thing because people get confused and then they think, oh, well, last year, 2023, I could do it. Don't do this in 2024. Right. You're trying to warn you. <laughs> right. yeah. You know, again, barring a catastrophe, uh, this is a one-time uh, special event, which really did help people, not so right. much in San Diego, but other parts of the state were really wiped out with floods and things. Yeah. And in the past, like wildfires, we had wildfires, obviously, in the early 2000s, and we got extended time because, again, it impacted people's businesses. It impacted, obviously, their personal lives. And so the government has been pretty good about giving us extra time when we have to deal with you know, unforeseen events. Uh, give us time to you know, balance up and get our taxes done. And uh, so, again, you're right. This is a one-time deal. 
Uh, that's why I'm saying get in early, get your stuff done, and uh, don't run up against that April 15th deadline. Yeah, and uh, don't think it's going to happen again next year because it won't. No, let's hope not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, so all right, uh, I also want to open the phone lines for you as well, and we got some great questions uh, I want to ask you here. But if you have a question for Tracy, he said he will take phone calls, uh, 833-288-0973. That's 833 833- Two eight eight zero nine seven three, and you got a tax question. You asked Tracy about that, and we'll go with that. Uh, so many great topics here that I want to uh, get in before the show. It's going to go very quickly here. Uh, let's talk about the rules regarding the sale of a personal residence. I was I was doing something this past weekend. Two thousand twenty one, California lost three hundred people a day. Uh, just went to Texas. So I mean, people are selling their houses and moving to other states. How is that going to affect them? What, what should they be doing? Well, this is, again, um, this law has been in place uh, going back to uh, what was 1986. They changed the right. sale of personal residence rules. So it's not a new rule, but it's really interesting how people have certain memories about things. You know, most people don't know a lot about taxes, and, and they understand they don't. Uh, but one is about the personal residence. And I will get calls all the times when, you know, you have clients refer in or have right. other clients refer their clients in. And so I know when I sell my personal residence, you know, how long do I have to reinvest to buy another home? And that's not the rule anyway. That's been gone <laughs> that for decades. Like, I don't yeah. know where people come up with that. But, <laughs> but the current law on the sale of your personal residence, you have to meet uh, some rules, of course, right. uh, in order to qualify for getting the tax benefit for the sale of your personal residence. Uh, the couple key ones is, number one, you have to have owned and lived in the home for two out of the five prior years as of the date of sale. Right. And those two years don't have to be consecutive. You could have lived in it for a year, moved out, rented it out, mm. or let it stay vacant, then moved in. And as long as those 24 months are within the final 60 months, then that time element, you qualify for the sale of personal residence, capital gain exclusion. Uh, the other thing is living in the home. You also have to have lived in the home right. as your personal residence. So this sometimes can be a question when you have a couple that get married. One spouse owned the house, the other spouse, they got married, moved in, and let's say the second spouse only lived in there for one year out of the two years. Well, you only have to have one person qualify for the lived-in rule, all right? right? So if your spouse lived there as a personal residence but not didn't live there the full two years, you're fine as long as one of you did. One of you didn't. So it's not right. both. And the other yeah. thing is you can only claim this personal uh, residence capital gain exclusion once every 24 calendar months. So the date again would be the close of sale on the personal residence and you buy another property or you move into another property, wait another 24 months, and then you can claim it again. And you can do that every 24 months. So what was interesting, kind of in the same area, kind of go on a tangent here a little bit, sure. is when the rule originally came out, People are pretty smart, you know, and that's right. what we do is say, hey, we got this. We found this loophole in the law. That you can do. I and think I know where you're going, loophole. but go yeah, ahead. Yeah, it's awesome. So, uh, you know, people had multi, multiple rental properties. Yep. They had three, four, five rental properties. And so we're talking about, so this is great. Yeah. Sell your personal residence. Get your married couple, $500,000 capital gain exclusion, which is fantastic. Uh, single people, 250000 Right. I'll sell it. I'll move into my rental property, wait 24 months and sell that. And then just liquidate all my rental properties and get a five hundred thousand dollar capital gain. That's great. That's great. That was great planning. planning. Well, finally, the IRS got a hold of us. 
What? No, I don't think we oh, intended that. So, <laughs> so yeah, that's not the rule anymore. So, so you can't uh, do that any longer. Well, it's limited on the capital gain exclusion that you get. So if you rented a property, then you move in it and you want to sell it. It's a very complicated calculation, but the basics of it is that you take a look at the entire ownership period. Okay. Okay. So <clears> let's <throat> say I owned it 10 years when I sold it. I rented it for eight. I lived in it for two during the entire ownership, it was your principal residence for 20% of the time. So oh, we would get wow. 20% of the exclusion. Wow. Because I, so, I know some of our clients say that they've had homes that they've had for 20, 30 years, and they say, well, I'm done renting. I don't want to rent any longer. This I'll move is, into it. I'll move into I'll it. play the game. Play the game. Eh, no. Yeah, they're they're <laughs> going to get about a 5% of what yeah, they're going to get Yeah, whatever the percentage years. works out wow. to be. So, But it's only from 2009. I think that's about the date you go back to, because that's about when they changed the law. So when you say only to 2009. So what happened prior to that doesn't count. Okay. All right. So I think it's around August 2009. I, I don't have it here in front of me. But but yeah, if, if you were renting it in 1988, anything prior to the 2009 date doesn't right. matter. But you go from that point forward. So it's a limited exclusion, again, based on the facts and circumstances. But still save you quite a bit in, in taxes. I'll tell you, it's one yeah. of the best tax law changes that came into effect. Uh, the prior law for that helped a little bit. The, the uh, role was, where you can Yes, where right. you had to buy up and right. you had to be over 55. And, right. and so that was beneficial. But $500,000 capital gain is a huge benefit. Right. And again, if you get to parts of the country where real estate prices aren't as high as they are here, it pretty much wipes out the capital gain tax for single people and married couple in other parts of the country where the sale price of their home is 400000 which is good money right. in other parts of the country, but you have a $500,000 capital gain exclusion, basically most people won't pay a capital gains tax in the, in the lower-valued real estate areas across the country. Right. In California, San Diego is unique because there's a lot of capital gains, especially now with the yep. big run-up over the last few years. But the other thing, too, is that, unfortunately, nowadays, a lot of people are getting married, getting divorced. Um, how does that happen when somebody gets divorced? One person keeps the home, who gets the exclusion? I mean, how does that work? Does that throw things in? Uh, yeah, that really physics? depends, again, on the divorce settlement itself. So it's actually going to so, be in the divorce decree. With, with, yeah, well, again, um, you talk about um, when you go through a divorce, there's the property settlement portion. I think that kind of leads into another question that I was going to touch on, but this is a good point, I think, is um, most of the time when people are going through divorces and the attorneys are busy you know, trying to do what they need to do for their clients, what I've seen in my 40-plus years is that most of the time there's not a lot of emphasis put on tax planning. <clears throat> and what I mean there is assets have different tax bases. And right. some assets may have a capital gain. <clears throat> other assets, other assets um, might have zero taxes to pay. Right. And so, for example, you know, let's say someone's going through a divorce – and they have a rental property that has a $500,000 capital gain in it or profit equity. And then there's a personal residence that has $500,000 equity. So if it doesn't matter who has what property, what property would you want? I want the personal residence. Right. Because I'm going to get a capital gain exclusion. Right. I'll, right. I'll give the, my spouse the rental property. Right. But when you sell that, you got to pay the capital gains. <laughs> capital gains right. So it's, it's the same thing to take a look at. Maybe you're splitting up stocks and bonds, and you're taking a look, and, you know, we've got some legacy stocks that we've held for, <clears throat> excuse me, many, many years. Right. 
low tax basis, a lot of capital gain. We have the other half of the portfolio that has been purchased somewhat recently, has a lot smaller capital gain. So with some tax planning, you want to separate out the stock portfolio. You might want the ones that have a very high basis and be willing to give up the stocks with low basis. Just simple things like that. A lot of times uh, things aren't addressed from a tax planning perspective because there's so much going on when you go through a divorce. And and actually, when people go through divorce, I mean, I don't think, and maybe I'm wrong, I don't, I don't think I did it when I got divorced. I don't think I called you to say, well, what should I do tax-wise? Um, you, I, I don't. People probably should, especially on the house and stuff like that. There's so many things that they can trip up on. Right. They should have called you in addition to um, the other stuff. And you are, you are pretty, you know, you got kids, you got all this stuff going on, but it wouldn't hurt to give you or tax person a call during the divorce saying, well, how is this going to happen? Yeah, tax planning is key. You know, when you go through the property settlement portion and you're trying to divide up, you know, who gets what and how it all goes. Yeah. So, well, well, let's also uh, talk about, and by the way, phone number is 833-288-0973. That's 833-288-0973. Got a tax question. Uh, Tracy's here today. Can answer your tax questions. Uh, I want to talk about, obviously, we're, we're an investment uh, management firm. Uh, talk about the treatment of the sale of company stock options. We see this every once in a while it comes in, and it really is another thing that people get tripped up on. How, what, what should they be doing here? Uh, again, this is a very complex area of the tax law. And if you have stock options and you're getting just a few thousand dollars, it's not that big of a deal. And I'm just going to be talking in general because each company's plan is going to be different right? based upon how they set it up. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so you have to take a look at the plan and how it affects people. The main thing I want to bring to people's attention here is when you finally exercise your stocks, and if you're going to acquire the stock and not sell it. A lot right. of stock options, uh, once they exercise them, it's the same day, cashless transaction. Uh, you buy them, you turn around and sell them same day. It's ordinary income. It goes through your W-2. They withhold the taxes. And that's a pretty smooth way. Where it gets more complicated is when you want to hold that stock. I think the company stock value is going to go up. I uh, have confidence in it. If I, I know if once I buy it and exercise and buy the stock, if I hold it a year and a day, right, I get long-term <clears throat> capital gain treatment. So we want to take a look at that. So what's built in that, and again, we're talking about larger stock option packages, is... Not, not larger than being dollar amount, what would you say larger? I would say probably six digits in the $100,000 or more. It can, it can be a little bit less, uh, but um, when I get to I'll explain a little bit more okay. detail how, sure. the, how the, the amount okay. is going to impact whether this could trip you to, up or not. trying to have people like understand, well, does this concern me? Should I be worried about like this? Like I said, yeah, the $10,000 stock option, probably not a problem, but you, don't you get into fifty, sixty, eighty, hundred thousand dollars $100,000, you need to be aware of what I'm about okay. to tell people. So... So, I'm sorry. <clears throat> you might have that cold. There's a cold or something going around. No, a lot this of people morning on my throat. <laughs> got some something going on there. <laughs> so, what I'm referring to is I exercise my stock. I buy it and I want to hold it. And so people think that's great. I've got nothing to worry about. Is tell my tax guy I bought them, but I didn't sell them. Well, you need to still let your tax accountant know of the transaction. You can't ignore it. And so what happens, Brent, is when you get the uh, stock at the exercise price, the difference between the exercise price and the fair market value 
on the date of the transaction can produce quite a big gain in of itself. Right. That's the gain that is being deferred until you sell the stock under the regular tax calculation. There's a tax out there that's been around since the 60s called the alternative minimum tax. And so this law was originally put in place to really tax the very, very wealthy people in the country that were not paying any taxes at all. And so they said, okay, everybody's got to pay a minimum amount. So they minimize some of the deductions that you normally get in order to create this alternative minimum tax. So we're always calculating your taxes two ways. One, under the regular method. The second way, under this alternative minimum tax method. And so what happens in this particular situation is while the profit on the acquisition of the stock is not subject to regular tax, that bargain element, that built-in gain Mm -hmm. that you haven't recognized, that's alternative minimum taxable income. So now you can see why I'm saying it depends upon the dollar amount. So let's say you exercise some stock. My cost is $10,000, but the fair market value is $110,000. Right. I have $100,000 of alternative minimum taxable income. So that's where people And that needs to be put into the return. And in certain cases, you will have an alternative minimum tax on that $100,000 of profit you haven't recognized for regular tax purposes, but it is income for alternative minimum tax. So kind of an example, this really reared its ugly head back right around 2000 when Qualcomm here in town, remember Qualcomm stock, you had secretaries that had been working there, (laughs) you know, and then all of a sudden there were $4 million and it was fantastic for everybody. I was so happy for everybody that uh, made out on that. Uh, But there was a couple cases revolving around that that illustrates my point. So... People had the company stock. They exercised it. They own this stock. They've got a million-dollar profit in the stock. And um, so they say, well, I'm going to hold on to this because Qualcomm right. is just going to keep going. And so they didn't report it to their tax accountant because I didn't sell it. Right. You know, so you don't need to know about it. So what happened then is uh, a year or two after that, they got a letter from the IRS saying, you owe a bunch of taxes. And they go, I didn't sell it. Right. Well, the problem was is they didn't calculate the alternative minimum tax. Now, the AMT was, was reconfigured back in 2018. Originally, it was structured to really only tax, you know, a handful of big families. Right. The, but the they rich, never, yeah, the rich they, yeah, they never, <laughs> exactly. They never adjusted it for inflation since the 1960s. Right. So, I mean, you were in it for a time. I was in it. Higher income people were paying this alternative minimum tax. So what happened in the 2000s is you had this bargain element and nobody thought about the alternative minimum tax. So when she got it, it was worth a million. She gets this IRS notice that Qualcomm in the dot-com bubble right. dropped down to maybe out of a million. Now it was down to 200000 and they get a tax bill for 400000 Ooh, that's not So, good. <laughs> yeah, there were some really bad stories, and they tried to fight in court. And of course, they lost. So the main point is if you have company stock options, um, if you're not buying and selling in the same year, Okay, and exercising those options. If you're going to hold it long term, get with your tax person. And again, depending upon the size right. of the gain we're looking at, you at least want to do a tax estimated workup and see if alternative minimum tax is going to jump up and cause you any problems. And this is why, Tracy, I mean, for years, I, I, I do it. I always tell people to do it. When something I see in my own personal financial situation is changing, 
I call you and I ask you, what is this? How is this going to affect me? Can I deduct this? Can I do that? Sometimes you say yes, sometimes no. But to not call when you have a major change in a financial situation, your tax person is foolish because things like you just talked about with the, these secretaries, they had to pay more. To, they, I don't know what they did. They had to borrow the money. They whatever. had to pay it. They, they had, had to pay, to pay it. it. Yeah. And, 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 and you can avoid a lot of this saying, hey, I just got you know all these stock options. Um, is it going to affect me tax-wise? What should I do? And you can kind of lay out for them, oh, if you do this, this will happen. If you do exactly. that, this will happen. Planning is the key. Yeah. Financial planning, your business right. with Harrison and planning. You know, you help people plan for retirement or their other financial uh, objectives that they would want you to help them right. with. And the same way in the tax field. And another big conception out there, I think, Brent, about tax accountants uh, is that all we do is put numbers on paper. Yeah. Your job is so easy. And there are, there are ones that do that, I will say. Well, but absolutely. Right. But yeah. a, a lot of us professionals, like right. I said, I'm, a, I'm an enrolled agent. Right. And so enrolled agents and CPAs that specialize in taxation, we're really good at our job. Yeah. And our job is to know the tax law. Right. Again, our mission for our clients is to not pay one more dime in taxes than you're legally required. And so we use tax law because we have deductions and in income that might be able to be moved around to two or three different places in the return that will get us different results. Right. And you can't assume, hey, if I do it this way, this is the best. Assume is going to get you in a lot of trouble. There's right. an acronym we can say for that I won't <laughs> mention. But, but uh, the bottom line is you've got to do the work, you've got to do the planning, and you've got to take a look at all options in order to get the best results. So planning is key. We love to help people with that. So, again, if you're ever interested in uh, – Having some tax information or, or your situation reviewed, I can't do it right now, but uh, probably after the middle of November, if you'd like to call in, uh, just Google us on uh, the internet, Gaines and Welsh. Uh, like I said, I've been in the same location in Mission Valley since 1977. You know where to find us, so uh, give us a call. And what's the best phone number to call you at, Tracy? 619-282-8290. 282 Nine zero. Area code six one nine. That's the old. That's that it. Six one nine, baby. <laughs> that's, that's the old one. I think from San Diego. Wasn't yeah, it, it is. Six one nine and seven one four used to be down here too. Right. Well, I think we got a call from uh, a, a stock investor, uh, Dwayne in San Diego. Wants to talk about Ford. Uh, let's go out to Dwayne in San Diego. Dwayne, uh, you're on the Smart Invest Show. Brent Chase, how can we help you? Hey, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm currently hold Ford. I've had it for a couple of years. Um, it's done well for me. Uh, I'm just kind of curious, you know, do I continue to hold it, to sell it, symbols uh, out? Uh, I would like to get your thoughts. Well, there's obviously the strikes going on, which is something you got to talk about. But uh, we always want to look at the fundamentals to see with that, is it worth holding on to Ford with the fundamentals? Let's take a look at the numbers here for you. Company Ford has a symbol of F. Uh, they are the auto manufacturers. <clears throat> look at the float on the short, not very much, 4%, so that's good. Institutional owned is about 56%. P.E. ratio, very good, 11.5 versus 27. That's a positive. Price to sales, 0.3 versus 0.8. Price to book value, 1.1 versus 5.3. And price to cash flow, 3.7 versus 8.7. So right now, you're not paying very much for any of the valuations for Ford. So that's a good start. Unfortunately, we do see earnings down 54% over the past year. The industry is up 3%. I'd want to know why Ford's earnings are down so much when the rest of the industry is not. Sales for Ford over the last year were up 11.9%. <clears throat> the industry is up 18.4, so not quite as good there. Not happy to see the five-year estimated growth from the analysts. Uh, for Ford, it's a negative 1.8. The industry is at a positive 9.1. 
Now, you do get a nice dividend from Ford. It's a 5.1%. They only use about 58% of their earnings to pay it out, so that's a pretty safe dividend there. Very important for an auto manufacturer is their balance sheet. <clears throat> and uh, they have a current ratio of 1.2 versus 1.5. That's okay. Debt to equity is high. It's 3.3 versus 0.5. Now, keep in mind, when you have an automobile manufacturer, that they do finance the cars. So you really got to dig many times deep into the 10Q to find out, well, what is financing and what is the actual debt of Ford? Because you don't want to have a high debt company. Uh, you got to find that out before you, you, you stay with Ford there. Uh, we do see a net profit margin 2.4%, about half the industry at 5.8. Not happy to see that. Return on equity is 9.5 versus 14.9. That's not very good. Look at where Ford has been. I mean, their current price on Friday, they closed at $11.81. Now, their high has been $15.42. The low has been $10.90. So they're getting close to that low, I believe, a lot because of the uh, situation with the uh, – with a uh, union strike here. Uh, we do see going out to December 2024, they are, have earnings of $1.86. That's very important because you go back 90 days, it was still $1.71. So it is up even with a strike going on. So I'm not sure if the analysts, and there's about 19 of them, are they feeling that the strike is going to end soon? What are they seeing? The high was uh, last week, or actually three days ago, $1.89, but still $1.86 is still better than 90 days ago. So the strike does not appear to be having a major impact on the earnings going forward. If I put a multiple of uh, 16.6 on that $1.86, we get a target sell price of $30.86. So it's a positive. As I said, the only thing I'd want to find out is what is their debt situation and why did their earnings fall so much uh, over the last year? You get those answers to those questions, Ford could be a great one to hold on to, especially with that, uh, what I said, that dividend was 5%, I think said 5.1%. So, um, and also, too, what is Ford uh, doing going forward? I know that they have you know, the EVs coming on, but how are they going to handle you know, changes. We have so many changes over the next five, 10 years and in technology, how is Ford going to do that? So um, I, I, I think it's definitely worth looking at. So take a look at the, the deeper thing. And if you find what you like, continue to hold. Hey, thank you very much. I, I'm, I'm <clears throat> really curious as to how the whole EV transition that they started several years ago and continuing to go is going to affect the stock price in the future. And, and I will say too that I, I don't believe <clears throat> down the road, we're going to be 100% EV. I think down the road, what you're going to see, you're going to have a certain percent of people driving EVs, certain people driving, you know, internal combustion engines, and then other ones like biodiesel, maybe natural gas. So we won't have like we've had in the past where everybody drives a gas car or a diesel car. I think down the road, probably five, 10 years, you'll see a mixture of three different type of vehicles that you can buy and that we'll see on the road. So you want to make sure that the automaker that you're dealing with has those options there. Already? I, cer I certainly agree with that. Thank you very much. Okay, Dwayne, thanks for calling. Have a good one. Bye-bye. You bet. Bye. All right. That does open the phone line, 833-288-0973. That's 288-0973 with area code 833. Tracy, and again, we're, we do have the phone lines open for tax questions as well. Uh, let's talk about something that, you know, we've got a lot of casinos here in, in San Diego. I mean, I, what is it, four or five different Indian casinos? Oh, I even with some of the little ones, there's one pretty much everywhere, everywhere in the, you're going. East counties. So. And, and and also, too, there's card rooms uh, yes. as well. A lot mm -hmm. of, they, they're still in California, which mm -hmm. I never understood what they were. How can they do these card rooms? But that's not part of the show today. But what is part of the show is gambling winnings and losses. I mean, you go to these card rooms, you go to these casinos. Um, how is this taxed? I mean, do people just, like, 
slide it on the radar? What happens there? Well, um, when you do uh, gambling and you win uh, over a certain amount, the casino is required to give you a tax form and report that to the government. Oh, gosh. Okay, of so yeah, it's called a <laughs> W2G for gambling. You're supposed to report all your gambling winnings. Like it is all income. You're supposed right. to report all your income, whether it's reported to the government or not. Okay? So you do report your gambling winnings, and uh, we see a lot of people bringing in the W-2G, so we have to report that, obviously, on the tax return. But you're also, do you, do you the, have a lot of people bring in the W-2G? Do you, do you see that a lot? Um, as a percentage, it's probably about 10% of our clients. Really? But, I, yeah, so. I don't know anybody. I mean, I've heard people say they're winners. But I think a lot of times they tell you about when they won, but they don't tell you the losers when they well, lost. Well, I see their losses. <laughs> there's virtually no winners, seriously. Right. There's no winners. So, uh, But, yeah, the way the tax code has us deal with that is kind of different. So a lot of times in a business, you know, we have income to report on our business schedule. Right. And then we deduct our deductions. And then we pay tax on the net profit if right. we have a profit. Gambling is treated differently. We are allowed to write off gambling losses. So, but what we do is they're reported in two separate parts of the tax return. So the gambling winnings go on directly onto the 1040, and so that's what we report. And whether, you, again, you got the government document, the W-2G or not, you're still supposed to report all winnings. Right? Right. Now, we're allowed to deduct gambling losses up to the extent of our winnings. But where do we deduct that loss? Well, we deduct that on the Schedule A. So the Schedule A is missile is itemized deductions. So that's why we write off deductible medical expenses, our property and state income tax, our mortgage interest. That's the Schedule A. So there's miscellaneous itemized deductions, not subject to a 2% AGI limitation. I know it's getting a little wonky, but anyway, yeah, yeah. you deduct it on the Schedule A, but the problem is, is what if I don't have enough deductions and I don't file the Schedule A? Yes. Well, again, depending upon how big your losses are, you may not be able to take the benefit of writing off the tax losses. So let's, for as an example, let's say I have $10,000 worth of winnings. I've got to report that. I, I can take gambling losses, assuming I can prove I lost $10,000, but I don't, with, even with that $10,000, I don't have enough to itemize. You just paid tax on $10,000 of gambling income and you weren't able to recognize the loss on your gambling losses. And I see this quite a bit. Wow. The other thing, too, that uh, <clears throat> makes the problem even a little more complicated is when we report those gambling winnings, uh, retired people have their Social Security income. And let's say they're lower-income folks, and so all of their Social Security income is not taxable. Well, what happens now if I come in with gambling winnings of twenty grand? So even if I can write off the 20000 of gambling losses and I don't pay tax on my 20000 gambling winnings, that increased my adjusted gross income, and now half of my Social Security tax is now taxable, <laughs> where it never was taxable before. Right. So you not, you not only not walk away with any winnings, you're paying more tax because the gambling income increased your overall income. And does gambling include lottery? If you won all lottery? winnings. All yeah. winnings. All so winnings, lotteries. Yeah. yeah. All um, games of chance all games are of considered chance. gambling. Wow. And so for those people that uh, do gambling fairly seriously and you're going to want to write off your gambling losses, the record-keeping requirement is very stringent. 
It's very strict. Mm-hmm. And so I would advise you to go to the IRS website at irs.gov and just type in gambling losses record keeping. And they have a publication and they detail everything that you need to do. And it's just not, hey, I'll just take the casino's report. A lot of times that's not going to suffice. Really? Gosh, yes. Yeah. They make it so complicated. They do. So hard. Absolutely. Gosh, darn it. And uh, yeah. we've dealt with this in business with auto miles and auto right. logs and, and all of that for years. Uh, so just be aware of that out there, that the gambling winnings, uh, while you may have losses, some people may not be able to use it. Other people actually may increase their taxes, right. even if you can write off the winnings against losses. So just understand the dynamic. And this is what we talk about planning. And this is what I do with my clients when they come in and I have a situation like that. I say, look what this did. I mean, I'm sure you had fun, but you paid $4,000 in more taxes. And you didn't win a dime. And it could have also increased what you're going to pay in Social Security, you said, too, because that could bump you up there as well. Exactly. That's where your income tax gets increased because your potential Social Security taxable income from that could be higher than normal because of the additional income. Uh, I'm going to ask this this question. I I ask your question. You say, no, Brent, can't do that. (laughs) So so you're you're going to these casinos. You're you're winning money. Mm -hmm. Can you deduct your travel expenses? No. Again, this is not a business. Yeah. Thought I'd ask. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and a lot of people ask right. that, and they say, well, you know what? I actually want to be a professional gambler. Yeah. Uh, no, you don't. Really? <laughs> so, well, why, why? Yeah, it's extremely difficult to qualify as a professional gambler. Again, uh, the IRS has rules and regulations for that, and uh, the main reasons people want to write off it as a business. Right. So they can write off their losses, uh, and they also want to then, like, you know, take off traveling to and from the casinos, and right. I, I go to Vegas, I want to write off the trip, and uh, it's extremely complicated, and the IRS uh, is really not willing to look at anybody as a professional gambler. Uh, can't say that, won't say that you can't ever qualify for it, but again, the hurdles uh, that you have to go through to get recognized in that, and there's still going to be limitations. And, and as I say, too, and probably it's going to trigger an audit. Uh, again, you know, the IRS has their filters right. uh, that they run everybody's tax return through, and I'm sure that's one of them out there because uh, they have business activity codes yeah. that you put on every business schedule. So, yeah, it's probably going to cause you an awful lot more heartache than what you might think you're benefiting from it. So I advise my people, you're not a professional gambler unless you're at the casino, you know, 12 hours a day, five days a week, like a job. Yeah, like a know? job. Yeah. And, and then uh, where's the fun in that? Well, exactly. Yeah, that becomes yeah. a job. So. Right. Yeah, so it becomes a job. So, so, yeah, so we stay away from professional gamblers yeah. for the most part. And, and there's probably a certain point to where maybe, I don't know, August, September, people get to a certain point, like, you know what, you should probably stop playing because if you keep on going, you're going to have now a tax situation to deal with. And so there's, is there a number like that? People should say, you know, you, you're at, I don't know, $4,000. Well, again, it's going to vary, again, yeah. for each person. Each person. So, uh, but for the most part, people do it for recreation. Unfortunately, it's just like anything else that we come through in our life. There's an addiction that gets associated also with gambling. And I've worked with a few people at that right. where they have W2Gs of $892,000 but they lost all that and another 500000 So right. uh, you just have to al- always be mindful of that, too. Of, you know, is it stopping being recreation and getting to be more of a, a personal issue right. uh, with the gambling? Um, so, again, I'm not a doctor. I'm just the tax doctor. Tax doctor. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there, there are some things associated with gambling winnings and losses. And if you're doing it on a consistent basis, just talk to your tax accountant and find out what the rules are. So you're playing by the rules so you can take advantage of the law as it best benefits you. 
Great, great. Well, well let's go back to the phones. We've got a call from uh, John and Coronado. John, you're on the Smart Invest Show, Brent Chase. How can we help you? Yeah, hi. I, I wanted to ask about, um, you know, I, I do Roth conversions religiously every year. And the thing I have with Roth, Roth conversions is that it just keeps bumping up my, my taxable income. Is there any way, uh, you know, around that or another way to account for it? That's a great question, Tracy. Yeah, yeah. unfortunately, no. Doing the Roth conversion, the whole point is to uh, take it out of a tax-sheltered account, uh, your IRA or some kind of retirement plan, and move it into your Roth account. And that's a taxable event. And there's no way of getting around paying the taxes. Um, have you, John, have you sat down with your tax accountant to take a look at uh, whether or not that makes economic sense for you? Um, I've, got, I've got some clients, Brent, that right. are in their 80s still doing Roth conversions. And, you know, they're not going to see the tax benefit in their lifetime because they're prepaying a tax now. You know, and probably sometimes you just do things because you've done them, but maybe it doesn't make any sense any longer to yeah. do it. Is that what you're saying? Well, and that's what I'm you know, yeah. talking to John about is just take a look and run the numbers and talk uh, with your tax accountant and your financial advisor and just see fundamentally if it's doing for you what you believe it's doing for you. So, again, Roth conversions are great in a lot of situations, but maybe they're not for everybody. So uh, I would talk to your two professionals, have them get together so that you fully understand. Knowledge is everything, John, and what you're looking for is some information and knowledge. Uh, you're a smart guy. You can go ahead and, and figure out the results once you get the information. So I would take a look at it um, with your accountants because, again, you're prepaying tax. I don't know anything about your tax brackets, but uh, if you're in a 24% tax bracket and higher and you might be in a 12% tax bracket without the Roth conversions, uh, they got to show you the benefit and how long it's going to take for you to recoup that tax uh, by having that money in a, a growth account that will be no taxes to pay somewhere down the road. So always take a look at the results, analyze it, and then you can make your own decision once you have the information. Does that help out, John? Yep. Thanks. You're welcome. Alrighty. Thank you. All right. That does it on the phone line, 833-288-0973. That's 833-288-0973. Donald Tracy Gaines, president of Gaines and Wells Financial Services. Got a question, give him a call. Uh, Tracy, this is one thing that you might almost have to do every year. And as I kind of said uh, when talking to John, I think sometimes people just, yep, I'm just going to do this every year, but things can change. And you've got to check things every year because things change. And, and especially in our business, uh, change is ever-present in the tax code. Yeah. Uh, that's why we have uh, education requirements, which I would be going anyway. Uh, but for, for my EA designation, I've got to take a minimum of 22 hours a year. I take 40-plus hours to keep a up year on what's to keep on. up on the right. changes, refresh my memory about old law that right. sometimes maybe we need to refresh our memory a little bit about some things. And so... <clears throat> education is important. And you're right. The tax law changes. People's lives change, Brent. You know from oh, yeah. this. And, you know, kids grow up and now they're not a dependent on your return anymore. How's that going to affect my results? Uh, I had a college child. I got the deduction or the credit for the child plus some education tax credits. That's now gone. So, you know, things in your day-to-day -day life may seem the, th the same, but year-to-year -year things do change. And right. so especially when you get into other things like divorce and who's going to be claiming the children on various tax returns. So, again, I just uh, encourage people to engage their tax accountant. Uh, our clients in our office, Brent, we encourage them to call us. We don't charge for phone calls. 
If you do have to come in and we do have to do an analysis or work, of course, we, we bill for our time for that. But I encourage my clients and anybody listening to call, ask the questions, get the right information so you can mm-hmm. make an intelligent decision. And many times, and again, I've worked with you for years, uh, many times just a quick question and a quick answer. Changes your whole perspective. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and if it is more complex, then you say, well, we got to look into this deeper. But sometimes it's just, it can point in the right direction, save me, anybody, your, your clients, thousands of dollars in taxes because you made one one minute phone call and you just said yes or no and, and took care of it. I mean, and, and that's why I, I've worked with you for so many years and refer my clients to you because yeah, you, you, you're very good on that. Uh, not saying, oh, and it's funny, I just talked to a client uh, whom I may have called you. I actually told her to call the show because they had this major tax bill from their tax person. They did first year with them, and he won't return the phone calls on why it's so big. And it's just like, I said, that's wrong. That's beyond frustrating. Yes, yes. And you go, we've called him multiple times, and he just ignores the phone calls. Yeah. I, I said, well, you've got to switch over to Tracy because Tracy does call back. And, well, and just like yeah. you, Brett, we're a you know, client-based business. Yeah. Like our clients are our business. And so, again, I know of other accountants that they don't return phone calls for a week or two. We return phone calls same day if we can or certainly yeah. within 24 hours, except if we're extremely busy. Uh, and I encourage my clients to call. Okay, so uh, you really need to have that open line of communication with a tax professional that's knowledgeable and that gives you the kind of service that you're looking for. Right. So that's extremely important. And you may not have the answer right when they call in if it's a complex situation. Exactly. But still, you return the phone call and say, well, let me look into it. I'll get back to you tomorrow or, or yep. the next day. And, and and don't call on April 15th expecting you to pick up the phone. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah. You'll get a busy signal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but, but reasonable, again, and, and I talked to her, uh, I think it was uh, Wednesday, and uh, I said, well, the tax deadline is coming up October 16th, mm-hmm. so they could be busy, but someone should still be giving you a call back on that. And to my knowledge, they've not, not called it back. And that's yeah, so to me, there's no reason right? tonight. I mean, would you not return your client's phone calls? No. I mean, it's just yeah. you know, good business practices. And you know, again, everybody has a right to run the business the way that they want, but client communication is, is at a premium for me. So, and, and I do tell people, do not email me because I get 100 emails a day. So if a client e- emails me, it's possible I'll miss that email because with 100 emails a day, it's possible it just got pushed down to the bottom. But phone calls, I probably get, I'll say maybe five phone calls a day. So if you call me, you'll get the return phone call. Sometimes the old technology works of talking to people. Hey, we're both <laughs> old school. I hate to say that. But, uh, you know, I'm still a paper guy a lot of times. So, but, you know, uh, yeah, client service is everything. So, you know, Returning calls to clients, listening, listening is so key in both of our businesses to what our clients are going through, uh, what's their particular right. situation, and, and what's concerning them, and actually getting to uh, the basis of what it is that they're looking for. Right. So again, we'd be more happy to help people. We can't uh, yeah, well, well, tell about the, the middle of November. Again, yeah, the, the phone number. Yeah, so give us a call when you they call you. You will call back. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, our office right. is going to be shut down for two weeks after the 16th for remodeling. So I would say if you want to get in touch with us, email us uh, at gainsandwelsh.com or uh, give us a call at 619-282-8290. Uh, but again, call us after say, November the 10th, and we'll get right back with you. More than happy to help you answer your questions and get you hopefully pointed in the right direction. You know, funny thing, talking about the same thing, and I've gone through this my entire career, is I talk to especially a new client, and I come up with something, I explain a lot right. to him, and he goes, 
Well, I talked to my neighbor, and he, his brother-in-law used to be a CPA 32 years ago, and you know this is this is the way it is. And He's it's, a, it's so people take tax advice right. from from anybody, Everybody. and and they go with it. That's the law, and and man, it's more times than not, it's not anywhere close to what the law well, really and you, is. And you mentioned how people still say, well, how long do I have to roll over that amount? I mean, it, they're basing on old laws, and you said they change every year, and that's why you spend 40 hours a year plus keeping up on what's going Absolutely. on because it's that's changing. Right. And if you, you can't do your taxes based on... Well, the average person and, can't keep up no. with the change. And, right. of course, they don't know the law to the extent that we do. So, yeah. again, we're not for everybody. I mean, no. if, if you have a pretty simple return and you just have a W-2 and you're still renting right now and you're reasonably sharp and you don't have, like, kid issues and daycare right. and, and other complex things that make the return more difficult, yeah, I, I have nothing against TurboTax and those kinds yeah. of things. But, you know... Software only does what you tell it to do. Right. And so if you're not sophisticated enough in, in to understand the tax law or how to put the information into the software, you're not going to get the correct answer. Yeah. No, you got to so, know what to put in. Exactly. Yeah. And you have to know the law. Again, sometimes, right. a lot of times, we can move information around to get a better result. You need to know what those options are. Yeah. And, and I, I got an important question. I know that we did uh, do have a call from Joanna LaMesa and David in Long Beach. Uh, I'd like to have you call back next week because I, 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 I want to answer those for you, but I, I want to finish up on the, the tax side here because there's something that affects a lot of people here in California. And what I'm talking about is a married filing joint versus married, filing separate. I mean, I'm one of the, because I'm not a tax person, I remember before, oh, it doesn't make any difference. Well, I don't think that's the case any longer because things change. Why don't you explain what you're talking about there? Okay, so uh, tax law is governed by the laws of each state that you're in, okay? So for California, we're referred to as a community property state, which husband and spouse Everything acquired during their marriage is owned 50-50. Doesn't matter who made it, right. who earned it, whose name's on it, doesn't matter. It's 50-50. And uh, most of the other states are what are called common law states. Your wages would be your income. Your wife's wages would be her income. And so uh, in the tax code, we have to follow the law according to our state law. So in California, we're a community property state. So uh, it's almost never better to do married filing separate because what we are required to do is take all the income of the entire family, doesn't matter who it comes from, right? split it in half. So you would report half of all the family income. Your spouse would report half of all the family income. You split all the deductions. And so the married filing separate tax rates are typically worse than the married filing joint. Plus you have phase outs of credits, you have phase outs of deductions. And so, again, in California, married filing separate is not going to work, okay? Right. They just don't let you. You can even have separate bank accounts, but what comes down to the law, if everything was acquired post-marriage, it's all community property. In common law states, they do have that opportunity because you have his income, her income, his assets, her assets, and so you can kind of play that game, you know, married filing joint versus married filing separate. Right. So that is something that you could do you know, in Maryland or some of the other uh, common law states, but in California, it just doesn't work. And actually, you know that uh, I was got married in July, so after right. being single for, what, 12, 13 years, 
I'll come in on April. Mary Filing Joint Mary this year. Yeah, Mary Brand, new territory. <laughs> Brand new territory. Brand new territory. And it's so important because, because, again, obviously there's a big difference between my income and my, my wife's income, but it doesn't matter because California. Now, what about somebody that does have a residence somewhere else and they maybe have a, a residence in a state that is not community property? Uh, yeah, that's a really good question, Brent. Um, and it goes by your state of residence. So this is kind of like, where do I live? Right. And, and again, your tax home can actually be different than your employment home. So oh. especially for people that live on the, a border of a state. All right. So let's say uh, you live in a, in a city right on the border and you work across the border. So your tax home is where you make your money. Physically, I'm right. in the state of Arizona. So Arizona's going to want to tax my wages because that's where I physically worked. But I live in California, so I am a resident of California, and I have to file a California tax return. And so immediately people are going to say, well, that's not fair, double taxation, you know, we can't <laughs> do that. And they're right. You know, so the way we handle that in given situations is we calculate the tax on where the tax needs to be paid. And so this would happen a lot of times for people that have rental properties out of state. I live in California, yeah. but I've got a rental property in Maryland. A lot of Maryland. people are doing that now. Yeah. 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 And so, yeah, especially with you know people getting properties out of state. Yeah. So you do have to file a Maryland tax return for your rental activity, okay, and deal with the tax consequences there. And let's just say there is a tax in Maryland. As a California resident, you're taxed on your worldwide income, just like at the federal level. Doesn't right. matter where you live, you're taxed on your worldwide income. Well, if California's taxing me, why do I have to pay tax to Maryland on the same income? What happens is California will give you a tax credit against the tax that you paid to Maryland. Sometimes it's not 100%, but a lot of times it is. It's close. So if I paid $1,000 in Maryland income taxes, I would take a credit against my California taxes for that same $1,000 to avoid the double taxation. But I get a lot of people retire and say, well, I'm moving out of California. It's a too high tax day. And uh, so, again, you have to understand what the rules are to qualify to be a resident of a different state. And you physically have to live there. You can't right. play these games. Hey, I got a post office box. No, it's and, not going to work. And I got and I'm, we're up about a minute left here. Uh, I, got, I do have clients that have like rentals out of state. And I just thought when you were speaking – well, you may miss the benefit of a rental property in Texas or Maryland, whatever, of the depreciation that gets you right off against your taxes because you can't do that if it's in another state on California tax? No, the federal law applies to everybody. Law, so, yes. State. state laws, again, each state law is going to be different, but when it comes to rental properties or basic items like that, the laws are pretty much the same. I mean, st the state of California now, our taxes are so high. It's like it's, I remember it used to be like just a few dollars. Now it's like it's not much less than the federal. Well, to be but for sometimes. most taxpayers, right. you know, we get into the state rate is 9.3%, which is a very wide bracket. Right. We do get into the 11s, 12s, 13%s, but that's really high income. People over a million dollars of, of income are going to see the extra high rate. Right. But even 9.3 is a high rate. Hey, Brent, thanks for having me on today. I really appreciate it, buddy. You're welcome. There's a the closing bell. If you want to contact Tracy, give him a call at his office, 619-282-8290. That's 619-282-8290. Thanks for listening to the Smart Investing Show. It is for informational purposes only. It should not be used as investment advice. If you'd like to discuss in more detail your investment needs, have other investment questions, feel free to call myself Brent Wilsey or Chase Wilsey at 858-546-4306. That's 858 858- 
1-800-526-4306. Also, you can call. We'll give you Tracy's contact information as well. And visit our website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. Thanks for listening to the Smart Investing Show. Uh, we'll be here next week on the Smart Investing Show.